You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. On this episode of Labor Wave, we are celebrating the 115th year anniversary of the IWW. In celebration, we invited Marianne Garneau and Nick Dreger from Organizing Work to discuss the nuts and bolts of organizing within the IWW and our future as a union. What accounts for the recent upsurge in IWW organizing campaigns? How do we make more universal for all Wobblies our educational documents and training programs? What, if any, strategic industries should we focus on? And should we target smaller workplaces or larger ones to build power? Finally, how much should we branch off from organizing in the workplace to forms of organizing outside of it? We discuss all the above questions as well as the challenges we face in building one big union, including the dominant presence of business unions and increasing precarity of workers in North America. Vaporwave Radio is an independent podcast, and we provide all of our content available for free online on our website at laborwaveradio.com. We're not going to put any paywalls behind any of our content. We also have transcripts forthcoming for all of our episodes, including this one. And if you enjoy our show, you can help support us by subscribing to our Patreon. Do that at patreon.com backslash laborwave. We have different tiers, and all of them come with gifts as gestures of our appreciation for subscribing to the show. We want to give a shout-out to all of our current patrons. Thank you for supporting our show. And also a shout-out to In The Red Records, who have given us permission to use the musical content of their artist. So all the music that you'll hear on Laborwave either comes from John Dwyer of the OCs, who gave us his permission to use his music, or music from artists on In The Red Records. If you're unable to support the show by becoming a patron, you can also support us by liking and following our content on social media and sharing our episodes. Also, write us reviews on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts that helps us keep us in the charts and reach more listeners. We have a number of exciting shows upcoming, including an episode on Amazon capitalism with the editors of the new Pluto Press book, The Cost of Free Shipping, Amazon in the Global Economy, and we talk with workers from No Evil Foods about union busting at the faux progressive company that sells vegan meat substitutes. All this and more coming up on Labor Wave. I don't want to talk anything about the election, but what we can start by saying is crisis moment, undoubtedly, in the cycles of capitalism. We continue to see them intensify, and some of that has resulted in an uptick in labor militancy across North America, I would say. But in particular, the presses tend to focus on the mainstream labor movement when it comes to that kind of militancy. You know, we hear about Unite Here and SEIU and CWA. What I want to talk about is where the IWW role is within this re-emerging militant labor movement, if you even agree that what we have is a movement. So the first question, just to talk about the IWW, is... We'll get to where we are now, but where do we need to be 10 years from now as the IWW to be successful and effective? Like, what should our goals be 10 years down the road? Starting off with the biggest question, I feel like we can go backwards from there. I think that we've basically developed a very good, very unique, successful 
organizing program and organizing approach. And perhaps even more importantly, we've developed a popular education program to deliver that to any worker off the street. And I think that the biggest issue is the fact that it's underutilized. I think there are a ton of off-ramps these days, especially under the influence of the labor movement. I think there's a ton of influence from the nonprofit sector, which basically operates through things like public relations and uh, political lobbying and pressuring. There's a ton of pressure from the labor movement to operate in a conventional manner by filing for elections and winning certification and bargaining at the bargaining table. And so there are so many off-ramps, as I'm calling them. And I see all of those things kind of like fish hooks in the mouths of our members, as opposed to focusing on this curriculum that we've built, which I, you know, I'm going to be annoying, but I just wrote a long, in-depth research-based article on this where I kind of dug into it and where it came from. And the answer is that it didn't come from some kind of like programmatic ideological position. It came from us trying every other method of organizing for decades and working out this system kind of by trial and error and really learning how to develop power within the workplace and deploy that power for gains. And I, I think that the, the way we approach that is unique within the labor movement. I know that's not a perfect answer to your question in terms of where should we be in 10 years, but I basically think that we should just have more confidence in that model and be deploying it more. So maybe in 10 years, we'll be using that model and stop being distracted or uh, hooked by the fish baits, I guess you were saying, of the mainstream labor movement. From my perspective, and, and this is almost kind of like going to be a bit of an exit interview for me with the IWW because my membership lapsed because I took a job with a business union that put me, uh, it made me ineligible for IWW membership. But I was involved in the organization for about 18 years. And, and I definitely have seen it go through a lot of ups and downs in the cycles. And I think that the IWW's trajectory is generally good. And I think it has higher quality problems. Uh, 10 years is always kind of a, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting number because on one hand, like, I mean, you can say the like, the, the, the historically accurate IWW answer is going to be, well, you know, we're going to have the cooperative commonwealth, the, 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 the Republic of Labor, we're going to control the means of production and distribute the, the fruits of our labor equitably. But of course, um, you know, we've been saying that in 10 years for 120 years, so or 115 years at least. So, so I think in 10 years, I think that the IWW to kind of build on what Marianne is saying, should continue in the same trajectory it has been where it honestly reflects on what it's doing and builds capacity on what actually builds a constituency and a base of workers who actually are able to take action collectively against their bosses in order to get concessions. And I think that whenever we come back to that metric, we do well. So honestly, the IWW right now is exploding in growth. When I left, I think it was about 7,000, but it was growing by a few hundred a month. So for all I know, we could be around eight, maybe even 9,000 by now. But I think that the IWW could actually benefit from, I think the IWW would be closer to its goals if it even had half those many members, but they were based in committees on the job that could process issues on the floor and take action collectively and move forward on that. Um, the IWW numerically is getting to the point where it's a respectably sized small union, but has no density anywhere. 
And I think that there's a lot of shortcuts to building that density. I think that the obvious one that Marianne's talking about is, is kind of contract certification, elections and all of that. But I think we've all seen those kind of shell shop unions where, where there's no real presence there and it's just simply a, an empty certification. And I also think that the IWW, its real strength, what actually differentiates it is that model based on direct action and mobilization, which means the bar set higher. The bar set a bit higher as a revolutionary union for what you're trying to accomplish. And I think if the IWW is just trying to duplicate what other unions are doing, I think that that's a waste of an organization. I think the IWW has a unique role to play, and it's really special and important. And I think that the IWW in 10 years will hopefully be closer to its goal of building something fundamentally different than the rest of the labor movement than it is to building something that has the numbers and strength but is basically a conventional union with an anarchist leadership. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is the fact that the rest of the labor movement sets itself goals. It sets itself 10-year goals, 15-year goals, 5, 20-year goals, what have you, and it usually fails to meet those. And I'm reading Steve Early's great burn book about the SEIU called The Civil Wars in U.S. Labor Right Now, and it's about the late 90s, early 2000s, the change to win federation and these splits that happened in the labor movement because there are some folks within it thinking that they had a better way to organize and um, a better approach to rebuilding to rebuilding unions. And none of them really met their goals. And all of those strategies basically fell flat. And so I think it's important to recognize that other unions also have visions of where they're going to be in 10 years and then don't meet them. It's not like the IWW is the only one not meeting its trajectory or something. I guess I'll go out on a limb and say I don't anticipate any of the mainstream labor unions are going to meet their goals in the next 10 years. But I think that what you all are saying is that we have a model in the IWW. We have a methodology that can be effective. We need to apply it. I want to return to that and talk about why we're not applying it in the places where we could be. But you know, maybe before we get there, 10 years, okay, I get it. That's too far off into the future. We don't want to predict revolution right off the bat. But what about currently, strategically, should we have some like major targets on our horizon? Like, should we be going after like Amazon, for instance? Like, what are the key strategic sectors of the workforce or industries? Or do we, do, should we be thinking in those terms as the IWW? So from my perspective on Amazon, uh, first off, if we were going to do that, I wouldn't be announcing it on a podcast. So I guess it's pretty <laughs> safe to say that we're probably not doing much at Amazon if I'm talking freely about Amazon as a hypothetical example. But I think that the key thing that we want to look at is when we engage in campaigns that are concerted and targeted is how do we use that to build the organization and our capacity? So I'm not so concerned about key fulcrum points in the economy or, or even targets that are just easy, low-hanging fruit in order to build a base. I think that the best thing we can do is organize in industries where we'll come out with more organizers and more capacity. And, and there's, I think, a lot of potential. I've always felt that the IWW is a great fit for food and retail, uh, restaurants, uh, smaller grocery stores, that kind of thing. I also think that our model works fairly well comparatively to the business union's models in shops that are, that are smaller, although I think we should try our hand at more larger shops. I think the simple fact is most unions, uh, the organizing department, you ask the head of any organizing department in a major union, they have a number and it's usually 50, sometimes 100. Uh, where they won't, what they won't just won't touch it. it. The money, the revenue. There's no business case. The revenue doesn't make enough to pay for the servicing costs. Um, and I think the IWW, because it's 
at least in most cases, a leaner model than a lot of uh, conventional unions. Uh, as far as staff and, and money and those kinds of resources, it can actually go pretty far on that um, in those kinds of shops. So I think that the most important thing, though, for the IWW is, is that they work on building capacity, that they work on developing campaigns where they get more organizers, and they work on developing campaigns where they can identify winnable goals, where they can do something for the staff who work there. And I think that's actually probably one of the most important and underrated ones. And I think people often don't look at that seriously enough. Is it, is it winnable? Is there something that we can get for people? And that doesn't mean it has to be uh, a, like, you're not going to win a full pension for a bunch of people at a 10-person coffee shop, but you may very well deal with some health and safety issues, some sexual harassment on the job kind of issues, and, and that kind of thing. And that's, that's not nothing. It's important to people. And those kinds of little things are the sorts of things that, that the foundations of a union are built on. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's the reason why all of the folks that spend their youth with the IWW organizing their coffee shop immediately get poached by mainstream unions, because that's not nothing. Learning how to build that kind of committee with your coworkers, learning how to do that outreach, learning how to take action on the floor and confront the boss, that is, in some cases, more than other staff do who are going out and collecting cards. So there's genuine strength to our organizing. I also agree with Nick about there being a fit between the IWW and retail, fast food, smaller shops for all kinds of reasons. For one thing, that's where a lot of our membership already happens to work, you know, and I, th I think we need to not, the problem with talking about strategic industries, and I think it's actually a problem when mainstream unions do it too, because none of them are doing a good job of organizing that either. It's all kind of smoke and mirrors and air war stuff. But realistically, the IWW is not going to take on Amazon as a corporation. If enough people got a job at one particular war warehouse, I think they could build a committee. But for the most part, our members just already work in food and retail. So go organize that. None of the other unions are really touching it. To the extent that they are, it's actually just funneled into an electoral campaign and not actually about building presence on the floor. And I think that, again, you know, the model works where it's not really reliant on staff and we may not be you know, bargaining pensions for people in grocery stores, but neither for the most part of the mainstream unions at this point. So yeah, I, I think it's all relative. I think that that's kind of an honest approach to to just start organizing where our membership already is. That sounds really interesting. So it almost sounds like in some ways we can kind of pick up the slack of where the mainstream labor unions won't even bother in terms of trying to organize and build worker power, particularly in food and retail. Marianne, earlier you were mentioning that we have a model and we have a methodology that is effective. What do you think are the main obstacles and challenges to applying that model? Like It kind of sounded like you were suggesting maybe the biggest hindrance is actually business unions kind of distracting or poaching our campaigns. But I, I want to put it up to you and hear what you have to say about that. I mean, no, I wouldn't say that business unions are generally poaching our campaigns. I, I think that it, it actually does happen. It doesn't happen. I don't think that's the biggest threat, certainly. Again, these tend to be small units that they're not really interested in. I think the issue is that our membership is a very young membership that is basically kind of constantly being renewed. So we have a sort of aging problem where we don't retain people for long enough, again, for one reason, because they actually find employment with mainstream unions or uh, because they don't have as much time to devote to the union once they have a couple of kids and a full-time job. There's also a tremendous amount of 
you know, hostility in some ways to anybody like who's that 60s person who's like, don't trust anybody over 30. Like there's that kind of mentality a little bit. Abby Hoffman, is that what you're talking about? I, I thought it was Hoffman, but I didn't want to be wrong on a podcast where it really counts. So uh, what, uh, I think you are putting the bar too high on this podcast <laughs> integrity. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, I think we have a, co- a membership that ship that's constantly churning over and coming from a kind of uh, left activist, somewhat undisciplined place which is both good and bad because it frees people to experiment and to, and to screw up and, you know, that's fine. But it also means that there, there, it's not like you can be fired from a volunteer position. It's not like anybody can really discipline you in the course of your membership. And so, which is, again, I don't mind having that problem per se. I would take, it's a cost benefit trade-off and I would take those problems for the sake of applying, you know, the organizing the way that we do. But I think that's a big part of it. I, I just kind of want to expand on what Marianne's saying about the IWW almost kind of as a laboratory for different organizing techniques. And that's that's a double-edged sword in a certain sense in that the IWW has developed a program that's really good and really interesting. And what's interesting is that as soon as that program kind of develops into a sort of hegemony and group identity in the organization, there's this interesting thing where a certain segment of the membership, I almost think, kind of wants to buck that. And so they want to be new and creative by doing conventional business union stuff. So I've found myself literally having this conversation, oh no, we want to do this creative thing called certifying for a bargaining unit status and then bargaining a contract with a no strike clause. And this is just an experimental kind of thing and we're trying something new. And it's just, it's kind of interesting because I think that, and, and that double paired with the fact that we kind of recruit out of already politicized circles that may not be aware of the rest of the labor movement things that are actually really conventional trade union or nonprofit kind of strategies all of a sudden kind of become this kind of almost rebellious new idea when they're not. That's just kind of how conventional unions do things and also have failed to get much done in a lot of large swaths of industries, right? So, so it's interesting that it actually, the main thing pushing back against the IWW developing and learning and becoming something interesting and different is also the, what allows it to be an interesting uh, arena for different kinds of ideas to come forward, if that makes sense. Like, like we, we experiment, we learn, we develop that, we debate it, and then we develop an interesting and different program. And then because of that looseness of programmatic, like, like that loose program, we also become a place where we actually start replicating all of this other stuff that's just going on in the rest of the labor movement. And I think the IWW really does need to develop the organizational kind of the ability to move in one direction together in order to actually capitalize on the advantages that it has and what it's actually learned over the last 30 years or so. What you are saying makes me uh, wonder what accounts for the recent upsurge of IWW activity? Like Marianne, that article that you wrote about the IWW's training program was really interesting. And for me, I didn't realize how relatively new it actually is. Like it's pretty recent history that it started being developed and then refined and over and over through practice and methodical attention. What accounts for these successes? Like why did the IWW start kind of springing back into successes? I mean, Nick has been more active than I have over the last couple of decades 
I first signed up 20 years ago, but did absolutely nothing until like about 2012. And so my guess though, or my impression having done that research is sometimes it's kind of happenstance. Like there'll be somebody within a particular city who kicks off a bunch of campaigns. I think when we had a couple of high profile campaigns, like the Starbucks workers union in New York, which spread elsewhere or Jimmy John's Union, which was in Minneapolis and other several other cities as well. I think those kind of give people the bug. Organizing begets organizing. We also had a couple of members who were, we've always had a membership that was had one foot in the mainstream unions already. People who were kind of shop stewards dissatisfied with the mainstream grievance process or young upstarts who went to the AFL-CIO's organizing institute, or we've had people kind of drift in and out of uh, mainstream unions. And again, it's a place where you can just kind of experiment and try your hand at organizing. And so I think maybe these things do come in swells a little bit, but it's also not a coincidence that that's when we were building out the organizer training program. Because once you then have something that you can actually go to some city and deliver to people then they're like, oh, okay, I, I know what I'm doing. I've got like track in front of the train and I'm going to actually pursue this. I did want to return to something Nick was saying earlier about the different sizes of workforces that we tend to have successes organizing. And you're saying, it, and I, I have experienced this too, when it comes to like business unions, the mainstream labor movement, if you get to a unit of like 50 workers, anything less than that, Actually, my experience has been like anything less than 100, don't even bother. So we go after those. Do you think the methods that we adopt, the approaches to organizing would need to change fundamentally in any way or shift in different ways, considering a larger scale workforce? Like if it's a hypothetically a workforce of like a thousand workers, are the same methods as effective? So I think that the IWW's shortcomings become more obvious as you scale up in the workplace. But in my experience, as a dual card uh, IWW organizer in workplaces of about 2,500 people, that the, the actual methods are very, very effective. But what happens is that the administration is what runs out of gas. And that, that's actually the IWW's real limiting factor. Because there's, there's two things that go on. One, when you're coordinating and developing a direct action campaign, when you get above 50, 100 people, organizational discipline becomes a little bit more important because you need to be able to move as a unit. You need to be able to sort demands. You need to be able to have some demands handled by one department, some demands handled by the whole company, some demands industry-wide. And, and historically, actually, the IWW has really had really sophisticated systems for sorting and developing those kinds of demands and, and processing grievances, is what they were called before the grievance procedure took it over. But what happens is that the administration becomes a real limiting factor, and in a business union the grievance procedure is a very standardized thing. It's not that different in the American post office than it is an auto plant in Canada, than it is a, uh, a hospital in, in Alberta, right? The grievance procedure the broad stro in broad strokes works. And what that does is it imposes structure onto the union in a certain sense. It imposes that organizational discipline. And, and if you even look at the labor board certification elections, all of that, those benchmarks and all of that kind of cultivate a certain structure and system inside the unions as well. 
So what happens, I think, is that the challenge with the IWW is when we move out of those systems, we run out of gas very quickly because where we're struggling is developing that level of administrative capacity that can exist outside of the labor relations system that imposes it on the rest of the unions. So I think that where the IWW runs out of gas is administratively processing things like taking in that much dues, processing that much membership, processing grievances, sorting them from little issues that affect one person to issues that affect one group to policy-wide issues, which are all things that the grievance procedure in a conventional union contract does. And there's nothing saying you can't do it, but you need to think through and reverse engineer all of those processes in a way that facilitates direct action and your basis on a voluntary membership on the floor. So the IWW does actually have some effective campaigns in large workplaces. Like like I mentioned, the the dual card work that I did with the postal workers. Uh, But another one is the CapTel campaign, which is uh, 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 captioning people who who are organizing. And they're actually a public minority union in an 800-person workplace in, uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they've managed to win all sorts of stuff from pandemic pay to pay raises beforehand. They've turned around firings. They've pushed back various uh, uh, company policies. But again, I think that a lot of the challenges are developing that administrative capacity in order to grow the union into something that's got a mass basis, because ultimately you need a certain amount of discipline and organization to one-on-one 800 people enough to not just identify them, sign them up, but also keep them paying dues and engaged, right? And that doesn't mean it's impossible. The truth is, in lots of other countries, unions don't have this framework and exist in very large workplaces. In some ways, it may actually be easier in large workplaces than small ones in the long run. But the truth is that there is no knowledge of administering and running your own organizations in the working class in North America. It's been completely stripped out of us. Um, it, it, it's the same reason, like, um, like uh, I think it was Chomsky or maybe Zinn who mentioned one time in a, in a recording I listened to about how they don't teach uh, Robert's Rules of Order in high school civics classes anymore, right? You know, and those sorts of things. People don't learn how to administer their own affairs. And I think that that is a real limiting factor in the IWW's ability to scale. But I also think that it's a uniquely IWW problem because of the path they have charted outside of the labor relations system. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And just to be shamelessly self-promotional again, the next article that I have coming out is about the fact that the rest of the labor movement used to actually fight grievances on the shop floor. It was always very much specifically an IWW approach, but at the same time, there was much more of that in the rest of the labor movement throughout workplaces in the 1930s and earlier, and even after the 1930s, as the sort of hegemony of the bargaining and uh, contract administration and grievance process was being built, the one that Nick is describing, it was in competition with a different system whereby workers settled grievances on the floor. They had meetings on the floor, they had shop committees, and that was sort of edged out by both business and government and in some ways, the leadership of the labor movement. So it's a practice that's disappeared, but that used to exist in a very kind of widespread way, or at least a much more widespread way than now. And when you have to rebuild that kind of thing and that kind of tradition and those skills and that knowledge and that experience from scratch, I mean, you're definitely, it's definitely an uphill battle. Like it's kind of a nice problem for us to have, but it's a monumental problem for us to have. And that's on top of just kind of like administrivia, like collecting dues and filing your DOL, you know, filings and sorting grievances and so on and so forth. 
This brings up a really important point, I think. And Nick, uh, you're talking about the IWW being particularly bad at administration. I remember you said this last time you were on the show. I've been wondering about why. What is preventing the IWW from getting better at this? And you mentioned the labor relations framework itself, operating outside of that poses challenges. And Marianne, you're also saying the tradition has basically been destroyed, so we're having to rebuild it. So what can we do to improve in this area where we clearly need to start rebuilding our administrative capacity? I think it's important that people understand that rank and file democracy in working class organizations is a political commitment. So an understanding that it's part of the identity of the organization. I think that people kind of think any sort of position on decision-making processes and that kind of thing is just red tape. It's just bureaucracy. It's beside the point. You know, it doesn't matter if that branch over there does things by consensus or that branch over there does things by so-and-so said so, so it's going to happen this way. And and I think that having votes and motions and decisions uh, made that way is actually really important for that aspect. I also think in a certain sense, maybe I'm too hard on the IWW for saying they're bad at administration. I think everybody is bad at administration. And the Wagner Act model allows unions to exist and be bad at administration. But when you're a revolutionary, uh, what's the old line? To live outside the law, you must be honest. And it means that to a certain degree, if you're going to operate outside that framework, the bar has to be set higher for things like discipline and accountability and how you run things, because you can't fall back on that system as much. I also think that one of the better examples of administration I've seen is in the Stardust branch, so which started from that one workplace and branched out to a few more campaigns, where everybody involved in the administration going back four years now has just come from the floor. And we've slowly trained people up to take on the role of secretary, to take on the role of treasurer. We've probably rotated a dozen people through those roles, delegate, you know, and that's in addition to the leadership that happens on the floor, the sort of ongoing cyclical organizing that happens, the people taking on projects. But it's because we've trained shop floor workers in those things that that thing, that that union runs under its own power at this point. I mean, for a couple of years, I was helping them out and doing the the technical aspects of administration, including everything from reminding them to schedule the meeting to the paperwork to what have you. But for years now, I haven't done any of that work. And I've seen the actual practice of, you know, training people up with those skills work. It, it does, you reach a certain critical mass where it does start to perpetuate itself. And at this point, I'm not even the one developing people anymore. They're kind of developing each other. And it was a nice thing to see. I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily bet money four years ago that that would be able to be possible, but it's something that has turned out to, to, to be the case. Well, and that brings me to what I wanted to ask you about earlier, Marianne. You were talking about some of our key challenges in the IWW being retention and also what sounds like institutional memory. Kind of building the institutional memory is challenging because we get a lot of new folks, folks that are inexperienced in labor organizing. So what do you think are some ways that we can improve in this? Look, how can we adjust? How can we create like mentorship programs in the IWW or, or what would that even look like? I was actually going to say the other reason I think they're good at administration in that branch is the fact that they have a fairly stable membership. There's not no turnover, but there's a stable enough base to draw from. And I think that that's part of why they become good at those things. But yeah, I mean, right now I hold a position as chair of the education department and we're trying to build out curriculum 
that will make it easier for branches to function instead of just kind of issuing a charter to a group of wobblies in some city and sort of saying, good luck. We've now got these programs to develop branch administrators. And I think we have a better structure as well in terms of the executive board checking in with folks and making sure that they're doing what needs to be done and reporting and whatnot. How do you stop turnover? I mean, I, I, yeah, that that's partly a cultural problem. I think the biggest solution, though, is just drawing our membership base more from workplaces and less from activist scenes. You know, people people float into the IWW and float out, and that's you know morally neutral as a phenomenon. I'm somebody who came to it through politics too, but if there was a critical mass, a sort of center of gravity on the other side coming from workplaces, I think there would be less turnover. I want to talk more about that, what you just said, about we pull a lot of our ranks from activist circles rather than workplace circles. So what can be immediately done? Like, what are our next steps for starting to have what, you know, Jay MacLeaver refers to as like structure-based organizing approaches in the IWW? Not saying that I'm a proponent of keeping the activists out or anything like that. We got this model, self-selecting activists, they're going to come in. But how do we start pulling more from the ranks of like the rank and file from specific workplaces? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it necessarily helped in that regard that we just kind of transitioned to an online signup system, which again, like that has good and bad aspects. I'm just saying, I don't think that that contributes to workplace signups. I think that encouraging our own members to organize where they are is the quickest way to develop more workplace-based members. And that's another reason why I'm glad that we have the organizer training program, because it basically gives them the formula for doing that. I also get the impression, and again, like Nick, who is older than dirt in IWW years, should speak to this, but I think that we are a less random membership than we used to be in a lot of ways. I think that there was less of a concentration in IWW, IWW campaigns and more of a concentration in like left dissenters from the labor movement. So just to go back to the point that I think we do make progress and speaking of 10-year goals and whatnot, I think that it's a better IWW 10 years ago. And that was true of of 10 years before that and so on. But it's slowly but surely, I just don't think that these things have automatic solutions. Yeah, I think like it's tough with the online signups because like honestly, if I could go back and have that argument again, and I was very in favor of online signups at the time, I would have a totally opposite position, but I think we, it, it, it is what it is and we have it now. So we just kind of work with online signups, but I definitely think that it's really easy to join the IWW in the same way you would join the Patreon for a podcast or the same way you would join uh, a Marxist online journal or whatever. And that kind of mail order radical politics is, is kind of tempting in a certain level, but it also means that, um, and, and it definitely brings in the cash but the, pro- the thing is with the IWW is our strength has never really been that we have deep pockets. And even when the IWW is flush in IWW terms, we're not flush in business union terms. So, so I think that just basically, I think that we just kind of need to keep pushing in the direction we want to go with regards to the workplace organizing. And I do think that the more we set down roots in the workplace, the more it'll become that and the more there's room to carve out organize, uh, organizational discussions that are workplace-centered in order to push the kind of discussion further and further towards that instead of what our position is on some kind of 
obscure revolutionary movement in the Middle East or where we stand with regards to, you know, like uh, Catalonian independence or, or, or these kinds of things, which are all kind of random leftist issues that kind of come in. And, and I may even have some sympathy to some of those issues, but like they're not really the sorts of things that build a, a working class radical politics in an organization. What you all were talking about reminds me that I had a question I wanted to hear both y'all's impressions of your thinking around. And that's that in my experience in the IWW, I've also had conversations and seen a lot of uptick in kind of a desire to move beyond the workplace or outside of it, I guess is more accurate. And tenants organizations, I think, are becoming more of a thing that IWW locals are willing to experiment with. I wanted to hear just like what you all think about the prospects for that. There seems to be a tension, too, among some of our members in the IWW debating whether or not our priorities should be in workplace campaigns or if we should start looking beyond them. I think I got accused once of being what a workplace reductionist, something like that. I don't exactly know what the, uh, <laughs> the slur was. But in my experience, trying to advocate like we're a labor union, we should be focusing on organizing at the point of production workplaces. I've gotten some pushback personally where people are like, well, these other types of community organizing efforts are just as important and just as valuable. What do you all think about this tension that seems to be present in some of our locals? I mean, I kind of want to zoom out and talk about the broader labor movement again to contextualize this. And in the broader labor, labor movement for about 40 years now, there's been a debate that says that the bad guys focus narrowly on bread and butter issues and the good guys have this broader vision, often called social movement unionism now sometimes running under the name of bargaining for the common good. And, you know, I, that could mean a lot of things. But basically, the idea is that the bad, obsolete uh, union orientation is to just care about bargaining table issues. And the good union or orientation is to have that broader perspective, to organize the so-called whole worker, to go into the community. I think the problem is that in practice, a lot of the times what that actually looks like is not doing very well at the bargaining table, bargaining concessionary contracts, not serving your members terribly well, and then starting, I'm going to keep using this term that Nick invented forever, starting kitchen fires elsewhere to find your legitimacy with respect to the membership in some other fashion. I think a lot of that stuff is sloganeering that doesn't actually deliver. And I think that that is the sort of uh, unfortunately, the, the, the two um, sort of alternatives there. I think it's effectively the same thing within the IWW. If people were doing incredible tenant organizing where they were genuinely building committees of tenants and exerting collective action in order to wrest concessions from landlords, I would not be taking a stand against that. The issue is that in practice, it's often an alibi for the fact that it's simply too uncomfortable to start a conversation with your coworker and organize your own workplace. And I think the same is true of everything else. I mean, there are all kinds of social issues that are important that are not necessarily based within the workplace. Police brutality is one very obvious example, even though I do think that can be bought from the shop floor to some extent. But um, I think that often in the IWW, that accusation turns into a political currency, which serves as a defense shield for the fact that you don't actually want to organize your own workplace. Oof, I'm going to use that next time somebody says that. Just coming up with alibis to not talk to your coworkers. <laughs> it's good. 
the IWW, like, I think any organization should pick one thing it's good at and stick to that one thing it's good at. And the IWW is just in the last few years getting good at organizing. I don't think it makes sense to go off and get good at organizing somewhere else too, right? Like, if you want to start an IWW for tenants, start an IWW for tenants and make it a completely independent, separate organization. Reflect on your lessons, engage in fights and learn. And, and honestly, there's a lot of tenants who I think should join an organization like that. But you can't be everything to everybody all the time. If you do everything, you're going to do most things badly. You're going to do everything badly. You basically have the energy and attention span to do basically one or two things really well. And you should probably focus on that as an organization. And with the IWW, that's the workplace. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the whole world or political horizons should be the IWW or the workplace. But it, mean, it does mean that if you're going to organize, organize. Because this is the thing. A lot of these tenants unions are people who, frankly, talk to the uh, neighbors they like, just like they talk to the coworkers they like. And they just want self-selecting groups in another forum in order to claim a political constituency that just isn't there. Do you think that the methods that work for the IWW could translate to these other kinds of community building projects, these other types of efforts? Like if we had something to teach a tenants organization, what would it be? And are our lessons teachable to that kind of project? I mean, yes, our method, the methods, not, they're not necessarily fully our methods, but the methods of basically talking to people where you live and building a genuine relationship of trust with them and building out and making, getting a complete list and canvassing through it as deeply as you can and building out links as thick as you can, and then formulating plans collectively and democratically to take action and then taking that action with a specific demand against a specific target. Of course, that works in a tenant environment. I've done it myself in a tenant environment on the basis of what I learned in the organizer training. And most tenant organizing out there, I know people who are, I would not call myself a tenant organizer. I just did it once in the place where I lived. But I know people out there who do do tenant organizing. And they, there's kind of the same issue there as there is within the labor movement, which is that there are a lot of really bad versions of it. In fact, there's a bad version of it going on in my neighborhood right now, where step one was to like have a banner event on a street corner. And then step two was to actually distribute flyers, so a little more targeted to the buildings in the neighborhood. And then step three was to start door knocking, which is kind of exactly backwards. But my friends who work in tenant organizing complain all the time about the, the bad sort of uh, PR-driven air war versions of that that don't actually build power on the ground. There's good and there's bad. Some of the organizing lessons are the same. But I think that Nick's point still stands, which is that like be good at workplace organizing. That's somebody that not a lot of people are doing that well right now. And we've gone through the school of hard knocks of figuring out a formula that's relatively successful in a particular context. Why run away from that? Like, you know, what, why are you running towards something else? And for that matter, there are tenant organizations that are relatively effective that you can join already. Like, I'm not sure exactly what gap this is filling for us to start serving this role. And also, what's unique about the IWW's program isn't, like Marianne said, mapping, charting, and, and administering uh, administering things in a democratic manner and all of that. The basic organizing skills, they're not that different if you learn them from McAlevey, Sololinsky, the IWW, or anybody else. They're, they're going to teach you, and whether they teach you the spectrum of allies or a one-to-five scale, it, it, it's all kind of the same stuff. What the IWW has that's unique is a system for identifying demands, targeting demands to the right level of leadership, and an analysis of labor law. 
And, and that stuff, I think, is actually pretty unique to workplaces. You're going to need a pretty different, any sort, of, any sort of system where you have a struggle between a mass constituency and a power structure, there's going to be systems that, uh, that, that, that mediate and try and make counter moves and try and tame those organizations and develop them in, into something a little bit less hostile or at least hash out some kind of social democratic consensus. But those structures are going to be fundamentally different in tenant organizing. And I think that those are actually the, the insights the IWW has in the workplace that don't translate. And those are important lessons that are probably going to be need, needed to learn in tenant organizing, just like they are, say, in the Quebec students movement, which also they, they call it student syndicalism. But student syndicalism is very different than workplace syndicalism. And all of these things, those insights, those things are actually what the organization, uh, especially a revolutionary organization, is the most important home for. That, that's the stuff that the organization should develop. And that's why the organization should actually be somewhat specific to the kind of constituency you're cultivating. Shift in here. Last time we were talking, Nick, on the podcast, you had mentioned that one of the things the IWW can get better at is actually charting our victories, like making them known uh, and keeping like a, like a ledger of you know, where we've been campaigning and where we've had victories. So in, the, in that spirit, what I thought would be interesting is to talk with you two about what are some of our recent victories that really should be like more well-known and that can provide kind of a case study for other IWW campaigns that are seeking to make improvements and like build worker power? So within the SFU branch, there were a couple of, just the other day, they took action in relation to some demand regarding the bathrooms, it being COVID-19 out there still, right? It was, you know, a simple grievance and, and they took a simple action and they prevailed basically immediately. This is something that's happening on an ongoing basis. They're enforcing health and safety in the workplace in a way that the employer, as usual, pledged to do, but then didn't follow through on. Within that branch, there have been a couple other things. One thing that stands out is the fact that they reclassified an entire workplace, an actual national workplace of workers, many of whom were misclassified as independent contractors. And everybody got reclassified as W-2 employees which then enabled them to begin accruing whatever benefits are stipulated by you know, the local city or state jurisdiction. Another victory within that branch at yet a different workplace was the fact that this studio tried to impose a non-compete clause and a bunch of other penalizing things in a new employee contract to their existing employees who already had worked there for years. Um, the employees basically collectively categorically refused and the employer took it off the table. I'm being vague about those workplaces because they're not things that we brag about publicly because when you publicly spike the football with respect to a victory, you're perhaps escalating things with the employer and inviting retaliation if for no other reason that they are then going to want to save face. Or maybe they'll realize for the first time that they genuinely have an organizing effort on their hands and not just a bunch of pissed off employees. But yeah, there is an irony where we don't some of our best victories we don't claim and crow about because it would serve no public pur purpose to do so. But that's all the more reason to kind of fold them into the organizer training program, talk about them internally, you know, talk about them at summits, use them as teaching or educational materials with, in organizing conversations and so on. Yeah, a couple other recent ones I want to talk about are the, the CapTel campaign recently had some fights over pandemic pay. They implemented pandemic pay and then tried to take it away. And there was some pretty solid organizing on the floor that managed to keep the, the pandemic pay in active and live over the summer. And that was that was entirely due to agitation on the shop floor. 
Um, and, and they've actually been pretty successful over the years at winning a couple of raises too. Um, and and that's, that's pretty good in a call center kind of environment where unions, you would think it's an obvious one where unions would do well, but have generally had a hard time getting into call centers. So, so some pretty exciting stuff there. Another one that's interesting is the, and this one is closer on the spectrum to a more conventional union campaign, except that they did sign a contract that has uh, that lacks a no-strike clause, and that that campaign in, in a grocery store, they've also managed to negotiate some improvements on, on some key questions and issues around health and safety that the workers wanted, and and you know there's some pretty interesting, innovative stuff going on there. And that one, um, they kind of managed to kind of flip the bargaining process into a an open room where basically workers would come at shift change and like there'd be like 15 to 20 workers standing looming over the bargaining table while they were bargaining with the employer. And I guess the employer was just sweating bullets because he had to bargain in front of entire shifts of his staff. There are some interesting ones that are kind of more on the conventional side of things that I think are still very in keeping with kind of an IWW kind of ethic of direct action and a working class democracy. But you also just did a bunch of research on like the Starbucks campaigns on the IWW's part and on the CAW's part in Canada. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and and, yeah, so the interesting thing they're comparing the two was that the Starbucks campaign and the IWW, because the one complaint people always have is, yeah, solidarity unionism is all fine and good, but it's not stable. It doesn't last very long. Now, I think that part of the reason for that is actually that we're often organizing in unstable workplaces where business unions don't last very long. And I think if you compare the CAWs organizing at Starbucks to the IWWs, they were within five years of each other. The CAW certified about 13 shops. I think the IWW was organizing in basically minority unionism presence across hundreds, but basically the CAWs with their certification elections lasted 11 years, and the IWW's campaign went on for almost 14. Um, so we actually outlasted the business union, and CAW is a very financed, resourced organization. We outlasted them by a few years uh, in, in our organizing. And if you actually put the concessions up, the most the CAW managed to get was a 30 cent raise. The IWW managed to force a $2 raise in the entire, in the entire, uh, like their entire business base in Manhattan. And often lots and lots of the stories that I was reading in the reports from around 2004 or so to around 2016, a lot of those reports were the, the first thing they won was actually a pay raise. Starbucks's first uh, reaction often to the union to, to the union coming onto their radar was to try increase wages to, to kind of push down union support. So so there was pretty good a pretty good track record of winning like some pretty good results in, in a lot of these workplaces that honestly the business unions like in, in the same workplace had a really hard time matching. I've got a lot of criticisms of the Starbucks campaign too, but they did some really great stuff. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you still have criticisms. I always do. <laughs> yeah, good. I wanted to ask this question about accountability in our organization, because something you were talking about with the sustainability uh, as a critique that gets leveraged against the IWW. I remember an article that was published on Organizing Work, and I believe, Marianne, you were the author of it, about the one-man organizing show. And it's a really good article. It's very important stuff for people to know, to learn about, to like beware of these kinds of campaigns that get basically co-opted by one person, they go rogue, take over. It sounds to me like that's an issue of accountability and that in the IWW, with the structures that we have, being kind of a nimble and allowing for new people to enter in and even like allowing for self-selecting activists to enter in, and sometimes an unwillingness to impose structure, we have a hard time with accountability. So what do you all have to say about that? Like, how can this improve? 
what enables the one man organizing show to happen across IWW so frequently? I think one thing worth noting is that both of those, there were two main examples discussed and both of them were 20 years ago. And I don't think that that's the kind you, I don't think you'd see the same problem manifest in the same way today. I think that there are still some instances of that happening, but I don't think they're as egregious. I don't think they're as common. And again, I credit that to the fact that we have a more disciplined organizing model now. I think that we may for a long time remain a bit of a home for those who have floated out of a mainstream union and we can even attract a certain type of person who is undisciplined because again, you can't be fired from a volunteer position and a self-directed one at that. But again, I think that the answer is to build up the kind of infrastructure around that person of accountability Um, The New York branch instituted a policy of having a three-person organizing committee take on any organizing lead that it fielded. I think most branches have standing organizing committees, and they're kind of a clearinghouse for campaigns. And I think that that already exerts a lot of discipline. I mean, even in the case of like I don't know if I want to name names, but like the campaigns that are coming out of Portland, I think I disagree with a lot of the strategic decisions that are being there, but at least it's not a one-man organizing show. I mean, there really is an infrastructure that they've built up where they are at least collectively making decisions. And I think ultimately, hopefully collectively kind of assessing the successes or failures of that approach. But What's the, again, here's another author that I'm not going to be able to name, but like fail, fail again, fail better. I think that's what we do in the IWW. Yeah, I think where the IWW actually does a lot better, though, is that I think that's what the entire labor movement does when they're actually improving and not declining is they fail again and fail better. I think that a lot of the labor movement won't own up to the fact that sometimes they fail. And I don't even necessarily mean like there's a certain necessity of keeping morale up and keeping up a brave public face, but internally you need to talk about where you fell short. And I think that the IWW is actually, when it's at its best, pretty good at that. Maybe too good in some people's opinions, but I think it's better to bend the stick too far in the direction of of general criticism. Um, And I think that that's what makes people accountable. I think that that's the thing that actually... Um, is your best check against the one-man organizing show and, and, frankly, charismatic personalities that a lot of revolutionary organizations become just simply instrumental of one or two big charismatic brains. Um, and I think that it, it speaks well of the IWW that we don't have anybody equivalent to the, the big Marxist guru that a lot of the sects have. But again, I'm reading a book right now about how the SEIU had this problem systemically as an entire, basically the biggest union, I think, in the United States. Um, and so did the um, UF United Food Workers after a while, where there was a cult of personality and it was a one man show and it created all kinds of organizing disasters and it undermined their strength in the rank and file. So it's not something that is unique to the IWW once again. No, absolutely. Even in my experience in CUPW, a lot of the organization sometimes looked like a confederation of fiefdoms, personal fiefdoms, certain personalities would kind of like take over a local and then the, the, the way you built political power was networking with the other people that had a lockdown on a certain local and there wasn't a really lively democratic culture in some of the like locals. I suppose one of the things that is unique to the IWW though is that even though these uh, mainstream labor unions don't often impose it or they might not impose it, they do have usually centralized hierarchies, like a hierarchy of authority. So 
I'm not saying that that's a better organizational model, but that's their model to like take care of these issues when they arise, whether they do it strictly or not remains to be seen. So it sounds like for us, the challenge is in like, how do we generalize good practices around these things, like practices of accountability across a union that desires more autonomy across its locals? I mean, I think already if you have, if you have a culture and also internal democratic enforcement mechanisms that require people to do things like produce minutes, produce motions, report monthly, et cetera, that already kind of drives the undisciplined people away to some extent. I also want to say that the plus side or silver lining of the fact that you can't fire somebody who is, let's say, destructive from a volunteer position is the fact that those people can't turn locals into their fiefdoms. I mean, they can, but technically, formally, they can't get rid of other people. There's a bit of a tug of war and there are power plays sometimes but arguably it's better than the situation where one person can literally just dismiss everybody else. To be honest, in any organization I'm in, but especially the IWW, my bullshit detector just goes haywire when people start talking about local autonomy because nobody believes in total <laughs> local autonomy. You ask anybody, like even the most diehard anarchist branch over there thinks that we should all endorse Bernie Sanders. And all of a sudden they're gonna not believe in local autonomy on that issue. So the truth of the matter is that when we're talking about local autonomy or we're talking about a hegemonic organization with a defined policy, we need to talk about what we think autonomy is useful for and on what issue and in what contexts. Because 90% of the time, local autonomy is just, is just local autonomy for me on my pet issue, and I don't want local autonomy for you on your pet issue. And the simple fact is that by virtue of the fact that we have common bylaws, by virtue of the fact that we have common processes and procedures in our constitution, by virtue of the fact that the organization has an identity that's inscribed in the rules and policies and training programs that it's developed, the IWW is not totally locally autonomous. Um, it just isn't. In fact, the IWW is way more centralized than any other syndicalist organization that's active and, and, and alive in the world. We're not a federalist organization. The IWW is actually pretty centralized in, in certain respects. Well, this has been a really rich and interesting conversation. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about, but I know we have to bring this to a conclusion. So in concluding, since I don't have a better question to ask, what, is there any final thoughts or things that you want to share with our listeners just about IWW organizing prospects in front of us? I know we don't want to make 10-year predictions amongst this group, but if you do have one lingering in your mind, please do share. Give us your exit perspective, Nick. My exit perspective on the IWW? You mean aside from so long, suckers? Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I think I think the IWW is really, really well set up to actually accomplish some really great things. I think the IWW is going to always have hiccups and problems. It's going to part of having a lively democracy is having vociferous and even harsh debate. Part of ha be, having an open organizing model where you take anybody is means that you're going to have your share of people who just glom onto it because, frankly, they need something to be involved in, not because they want to invite, uh, uh, like push the IWW forward as an organization or as a union. They just It's just something for them to do. The further the IWW pushes in the direction of it being something that draws from workplaces as a clearly defined thing, not just 
well, you work in this industry and you can sign up as an individual because that's just kind of casting your net wide enough to create the self-selecting groups by general workplace that you want. But the more the IWW actually builds real local constituencies, the, the further it will get towards its project. And I actually think that the IWW, where it does that, will do better. Um, and the IWW, where it doesn't do that, will run into the same problems it does over and over again, where it just collapses into infighting and weird esoteric personalities slitting each other's throats. And they'll just kind of be on each other's case for a really long time. And I think that those projects come and go, and the stuff that actually develops and moves the organization forward is actually fairly slow and steady incremental work developing real constituencies and bases. And I think that I think that as long as the IWW keeps its eye on the prize, which I think for the most part the organization does, sometimes despite itself, I think that it's going to do really well. And I think in 10 years, it's going to be further and closer to its goals than it was before. Nick and I have both done interviews with our wonderful fellow worker, Jacob, who kind of goes around interviewing everybody in the union and building up this amazing oral history. And we talked about ours at some point afterwards and how both of us said the same thing, which is that the IWW really taught me how to organize. And the more I look at the rest of the labor movement, and you know, I'm a member of another union now, was on a union phone call or organizing meeting earlier today. I've read a bunch of union education programs lately, looked at a lot of other models and, you know, insides of other unions organizing through this sort of journalistic project that I'm doing. The more I realize that, I mean, truly the education and the training that I've gotten within the IWW, both in the classroom and also in experience, is something that, like, I, I don't think it could have been better anywhere else. And there are a lot of, um, you know, throat slitting politics and, and, and goofiness in, in the union. But at the same time, like, it's the kind of place where whatever else is going on, you can develop tremendous organizing chops. Like you can kind of just ignore that stuff and dive into really effective organizing. And like, again, that's why our, our people keep getting poached by the rest of the labor movement, because the skills that they have are so, so profound and so effective. Well, with that, I really appreciate you both being on the show. Our guests have been Marion Garneau, editor and author for Organizing Work, and Nick Dreger, ex-IWW member, I suppose, these days, and also for right. organizing work. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, no problem, Alex. Good talking to you.